Tonight we continue with our reading from the Tibetan precepts for yoga disciples, the yoga of the disciple, the 28 categories of teachings giving guidelines to the spiritual practitioners on the path of yoga. And we were, last time we stopped in the middle of the 13th chapter, which is a one of the particularly ironic, sarcastic chapters, very sharp, about failures on the spiritual path, but not failures in which the Tibetan uh, gurus would say, oh my God, that's such a failure, poor you, or something like this. On the contrary, and the attitude is sharp and intolerant towards them. Like if there is a failure, then the Tibetan gurus would mock it, would ridicule it by comparisons which are pretty rough. Such as in the number nine, the ninth of the 13 grievous failures, which is the following. Performing meritorious actions in order merely to attain fame and praise in this world is like bartering the misting wish-granting gem Chintamani for a pellet of goat's dung. And this is a grievous failure. Again, here is one of the real pungent comparisons. The wish, the mystic wish-granting gem it's called in the Indian mythology Chintamani, and Chintamani is a sort of a magic stone. It's like a green emerald which fulfills all your wishes. If you want a comparison towards the Western traditions, we would have the Aladdin's lamp or some other magic item which can fulfill any wish you have. Of course, such a, should such an artifact exist, it, of course, it's not to be taken literally. It's not a story for children, but it's a metaphor. For example, many yogis say that the actual wish-fulfilling gem, like the actual chintamani, is your mind. Because with your mind, you can obtain anything, because the mind is the most powerful force in this universe. So it don't, it's not to be taken literally, but mythologically, in terms of legend, of course there is this symbol that there exists a way of fulfilling wishes, and there is a magic stone called Chintamani. Other people said it was a lamp, other people said it was a gold fish, other people said it was a goddess, other people said it was this or that. In every tradition you are having something which is almighty and fulfills wishes. If, even if you take it as a legend, such an artifact would be then truly invaluable. And to trade, to barter the Chintamani, he or she who has found it, would be the luckiest, most powerful person in the world because you can get anything, right? There are so many myths even in the Western modern traditions that... For example, the Nazis of the Third Reich 
were actually aiming to get the spear of Longinus, which is the spear that pierced the ribcage of Jesus, the spear of the Roman centurion that, technically speaking, killed Jesus. And the legend was that whoever owns that spearhead shall be the master of the world, shall rule the world. That's a chintamani. Now, get hold of the spearhead of Longinus's lands, and you can be the ruler of the world. So, either you take it in a more spiritual way, or you take it in a more materialistic way. This chintamani thing means a priceless artifact, a priceless thing. And to barter the misting wish-granting gem for a pellet of goat's dung, basically for a piece of shit, for a small piece of shit, is really a pathetic trade. You have to be not the worst tradesman in the world. You have to be insane, out of your mind totally, to make such a trade. And what is the trade? You see, the ratio is gigantic and ridiculous and a bit smutty on purpose, like to show the enormity of the mistake. The mistake being performing meritorious actions in order merely to attain fame and praise in this world. What's a meritorious action? For example, in the Buddhist culture of Thailand, people are making merit by making donations to monks and monasteries. That is called creating merit. And the Tibetan yoga says, if you do that just to attain fame and praise in this world, like take a photo of me as I'm offering a donation to a monk so that I become famous of how charitable I am, there are so many gigantic charities in which people put their name on front of it. This is the John D. Rockefeller Hospital. It's a charity, but it's a charity made for fame in this world. It is not a detached charity. It is not something done with like a karma yoga. It's not a detached action. And then this actually may produce good karma, but the Tibetan yogis being very versed spiritualists, then they thought clearly good karma means nothing because good karma will hold you for a while. If you are making a gigantically good karma, it may hold you even for a million years. Guess what? In the, through the prism of eternity, a million years means nothing. They will pass one day. And then what? Thus, for as you know from the Karma Yoga lecture here in Agama, for the pure breed spiritual yogis, for the hardcore spiritual yogis, good karma is not their goal. Normal people are taught create good karma rather than bad karma. That's always very wise and the thing to do. But when you want to go into yoga, into karma yoga, and generally into spirituality, you are being taught that even good karma is a pitfall, and the best thing is to create no karma, to give up all the karma, bad or good, so that you can rise to the next existential level, 
you can rise to nirvana, you can rise to the divine life, you can rise to an existence where karma does not act upon you, neither in the positive nor in the negative way. So, <clears throat> performing meritorious actions in order to attain fame and praise in this world is a double-edged sword because, first of all, you perform meritorious actions but selfishly with attachment. Like, look at me, I donated a million dollars for the cancer children and thus this is first of all a thing of gaining karma which the Tibetan yogis say sooner or later you'll regret having done it's going to be fun for a long long time then you'll regret having done anyway having done that and the second thing is that you actually divert that karma in what your ego wants. Here is a more sensitive thing. It's a very discreet thing of the karma economy or karma management. Because let's say you make good karma. You make meritorious service. And you are not yet detached enough. And you say, look, I already have some bad karma. I would like to get some good karma. Yes, I know I should get detached of all the karma, but first of all, let me enjoy a bit of good karma. So I'm not really ready to let go of the good karma, which is sweet, and thus I would like to get some good karma. But if I am at least a bit wise, at least a bit humble, at least a bit respectful of the holistic reality of this universe then I would say, you know, I am doing some good karma and may this universe distribute that karma wherever my greatest need is. Maybe I, get, I got some 10 units of good karma and I'm having an existential blockage in hearing information such as this one, which I'm giving now to you, which could change my life to the better, which could grant me access to a higher level of consciousness. Therefore, I'm simply saying, now I get some karma, these 10 units of karma, I can get them converted into having a better financial karma, like I get money more easily, I'm fed up with having financial problems, I always work hard and I always am low with my financial resources, or I can say, bugger with those resources, I will survive as I survived until now. I would prefer those 10 units of karma to be used more for releasing my blockages in terms of knowledge. Let my financial karma be as it was, I will still survive. My first priority is at least if I get some good karma, get me this, get me access to spiritual knowledge or remove a health problem which prevents me from doing something more serious in this way. And of course, many people will say, Swami, how would I know which is the first priority? Which is the hook which holds me back mostly? Which of those karmas is my biggest handicap? Okay, you don't know, then at least you can tell to the universe, you can tell to the gurus from Shambhala, you can tell to Jesus or you can tell to Kali or whoever is div divinity for you, you can tell them 
take this karma. No, I don't want to detach from it. It's my good karma. I have earned it with the sweat of my brow. But take this karma and put it wherever you guys think I need it most. So let's prioritize a little bit. Even that would be a little bit of a wisdom. It would be selfish still, because you don't want to give up the good karma. You are attached to its sweetness. But there is a bit of a witness, or a bit of a wisdom, because you realize there could be some priority, and I don't really know what the real priority is, so I better offer it with this meaning. But no, here it says clearly, performing meritorious actions in order merely to attain fame and praise. There are people who are so much thirsty for recognition. They all the time want to be recognized. They, you look in the, other, in the eyes of other people because they want to be praised. They want to have fame. Part of it is the weak people on Svadhisthana, because the weak people on Svadhisthana, they define themselves only through their peers. If your peers you are, think that you are good, then you are good. If your peers think that you are stupid, then you are really sad. While, for example, Jesus as a comparison, or Buddha, they did not really much care about the opinion of their peers. And they said, you consider me crazy, that's your privilege. But I found something which is worth finding, which is worth having. So better pay attention, because maybe you don't see what is to be seen. So those people stood against the crowd, against the peer pressure, against this praise which is brought by the others. And, but some people have this incredible thirst, as I said, for fame and for praise. And this is coming sometimes from Svadhisthana. If uh, the other people admire me, then I'm so happy. This makes my day. While you can realize that Milarepa didn't have a day, if people liked him or not, he couldn't care less. It sounds almost like a terrible egocentrism, you know, like I don't give a rat's ass whether you like me or not. I'm doing what I think is right, and that's it. And then there comes, of course, a part of this from Manipura. Those people are very different psychologically. It's not that they depend on the others but they want to have the power because the name, the fame, the appreciation, the praise is gaining you some privileges and those people are looking at the privileges. Like for example, we always have a law in all the countries where there is royalty, there are laws which concern the les majesté. Like you are not allowed to say shit about the king or the queen. That's because the king has only to be praised. It's praise and fame. If you say anything else, you aggress. It's an act of aggression to somebody's status, to somebody's power, and it is not allowed even in words. It's simply not allowed to do that. You can see how much the world of democracy, where you can take George W. Bush and say that he is a moron, it's much more a Svadistanistic world, because if it would be a Manipuristic world, it wouldn't be allowed, simply. You cannot talk bad about the king. 
That's a Manipura type of hierarchy. In the world of democracy, which is very much a Svadistanistic flatland, everybody pulls the leg of everybody. You can always make pamphlet, irony, and something. You could not make irony of Genghis Khan. There was no irony against Napoleon. Or if there was, it would be paid dearly very soon. Therefore, there is a difference between these two motivations, but both Zvadistanistic people and Manipuristic people, they are both hungry for fame, for praise, for reputation in their own way. And, therefore, here is a very subtle point, because if you perform meritorious actions and you say, May these meritorious actions bring me some good karma which should first go wherever God thinks that it's most necessary in my life. Then you are only semi-selfish or semi-wise. There is a bit of wisdom into it. You are selfish because you are not giving up totally, but you are wise because at least you say, may God's will be done in this respect. In the moment when you do like here, performing meritorious actions in order merely to attain fame and praise in this world, because for some people the fame and praise in this world sounds very important. We have a beautiful Vira movie which sometimes we show in the Agama lore, El Cid, the famous Hollywood blockbuster from the 70s with Charlton Heston and so on about the life of El Cid, the great hero liberator of Spain. And he has to go and demand satisfaction for the honor of his father. And he actually has to fight to the death with his own future father-in-law. And he basically says, you know, it's like this guy dismisses him and says, I shall never apologize. You and your father are two losers. Go home. You know, and he says, nobody will blame you for not fighting with me because I am the king's champion. And then El Cid draws the steel and he says, can a man live, live without honor? This is a Manipura point of view. Of course a man can live without honor. Not on Manipura. That's exactly what a Japanese samurai would have said. A man without honor can as well commit suicide right now. There is nothing. If you have lost your honor... You have lo this quest for honor is a quest on Manipura. For example, when you are having a tantric relationship or if you go in Anahata Chakra, you don't care about honor. Jesus says, forget the honor. Love your enemies. If your enemies spit you in your face, love them back. And Rumi says... A lover has no choice. A lover knows only humility. He longs to sneak in your alley at night and kiss every lock of your hair. He can't help it. He knows only humility. If a lover goes on honor, then he says, you, if it's a woman to the man, he says, you stupid asshole. Or if it's a man, he tells to the woman, you dumb bitch. You have offended me deadly, mortally. Screw you. I can't live with you anymore. I feel like I could kill you. In love, you cannot have honor. If you have honor, you don't have love. Love is the death of honor. Love is transcending honor. There is something higher than honor. But on Manipura, 
you see only honor. There are people who for their name and reputation would kill, would do anything. There are countries, politicians. You saw this whistleblower called Assange who published secret documents, diplomatic documents from all over the world. And suddenly the world could see on the internet what the governments and the politicians talk behind the curtains. What is the real language in the, in the internal circuit things. And they would say very impolite things about this king, about this president, about this country, about this thing. Like they would be cynical, manipuristic, scientific, evaluation made by the secret services. No, no holds barred, no kid gloves, like really the cold reality as it is. Those things are never meant to appear in public. All the governments condemned Julian Assange and they said this can start the third world war. This is so bad because the guy just showed what they really speak behind the curtains. Because it's one thing to have religions meet in uh, Cape Town in the International Congress of Religions where Vivekananda was a hundred and I don't know how many, ten or twenty years ago and people keep meeting in international congresses of religions where they say, brother, brother, you are my brother, we are all one. And then when you go in the secret meetings of every religion, they keep saying everybody is a sinner, everybody is shit. Everybody will go to hell, only we are right. It's lip service. This is politics. Nobody really believes in it. So do the governments. They say all sorts of polite things, but when you look at their internal mail, at their internal letters, it's full of shit. It's full of cold truths and it's full of tough stuff. That is why people, politicians and this kind of people, they would die. They would condemn someone to death so that they defend their reputation, their reputation, their praise. This is the most important thing for them, for those people, which shows exactly the level of consciousness of the society. It's either Manipura for the powerful people, or it is Vadistana for the snobbish people. The snobbish people are just thinking that they get something if the other people gossip nicely about you, and the Manipura people, they just want the power and the advantages which comes from that. That is why the Tibetans, especially being a Manipuristic society, they are used with this trend. They say, performing meritorious actions. There are so many people who seem to be religious. That is why there are people who contest. Are, for, for example, a Pope like John Paul II was praised as being a spiritual leader. But many people say, was the Pope really a spiritual person? Did he have any accomplishment in prayer? Did he ever reach to the level of at least the prayer of the heart? Did he ever experience one state of superconsciousness due to prayer? Like, why do we mix up fame, name, reputation with the actual spiritual level? Many people would say, Mother Teresa did a lot of charity. And immediately, 
the Vatican sponsored it big time because for the Vatican it was very good advertising for the Roman Catholic Church that they gave a few of their many, many millions of dollars to some hungry children in Calcutta and then you could have everybody taking photos with Mother Teresa and this was just PR. It's pure PR. It's interesting to do some charity where you have nothing to gain, where you have everything to lose. That would be a charity where you would say, you know, I did it anyway because it was the right thing. But the charity which is politically correct and which is like, oh, everybody can't say anything against it, they, they went into a rush to canonize Mother Teresa, like Mother Teresa had to be a saint, right? Because when you are a woman that gives food to hungry children, wait a second, this woman was not giving food to the hungry children from her own money. She was receiving millions of dollars from the Vatican, which she funneled into food. So she was an administrator. Surely, she woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and she did charitable work from morning till evening. Her personal effort cannot be ignored. And she herself, she didn't ask for praise. She didn't ask for glory. She was indeed a very modest person who did karma yoga. But the Roman Catholic Church fed itself gloriously from the actions of Mother Teresa and benefited. And Mother Teresa innocently said, well, my Pope knows what he does. The church is my mother and she knows what she does. She simply surrendered and she simply said, let it be, it's their problem. I personally, I'm doing my karma yoga, I'm humble, I'm clean and therefore... They canonized her. They made her into a saint. Although she had not performed miracles, at least not any spectacular visible one, she had not, like there are some rules for becoming a saint. A few years later, they were in the rush, like there were no more saints in the 20th century. And people would say that the Roman Catholic Church has gone dry, has gone dead, like a spring that doesn't spring anymore, like a tree that doesn't produce fruits anymore. So you have to produce, you have to strain yourself to produce, even when they are semi-fake or with a question mark. Five years later, somebody produced letters written by Mother Teresa, in which she confessed in her own writing that her prayer was really bad and she often doubted the existence of God. Therefore, and it was a shame, and the Catholic Church probably paid a truckload of money to hush down those, so you didn't hear much more about it. It was quickly buried somewhere. But that was the historical truth. This is charity done for the sake of reputation, fame, Whatever Mother Teresa did, if she had a clean heart, she did it in the, with candor and with innocence. But whatever was passed further, it is very doubtable if the authorities of the church took her service and passed it on to God as they were supposed to be, or they simply stored it on their shelves as a source of popularity, as a source of fame, praise, and other such things. That is why, unfortunately, in the modern world, you very seldom find people who perform meritorious actions, either totally selflessly and anonymously, or who perform selfless actions for the, for the glory of the higher self, for the glory of God, 
in indeed in a spiritual way, out of which no merit, no glory, or such things will result. Thus, this is a typical problem of our world, and the Tibetan yogis have seen it mercilessly, and they have ironized it terribly by comparing it to an insane person that would change the greatest material gift in the world, the magic stone Chintamani, for a piece of dung, for a piece of animal feces. 10. If after having heard much of the doctrine, of course, here it's about the Buddhist doctrine because this text is Tibetan, so when they say the doctrine, it means the doctrine of yoga and in general the doctrine of Buddhism and of Buddhist yoga, of Tibetan Buddhist yoga. If after having heard much of the doctrine, much, not a little, one's nature still be unattuned and disharmonious, one is like a physician with a chronic disease. And this is a grievous failure. Again, biting irony. What's a physician with a chronic illness? Like, doctor, heal yourself. It is not giving confidence, right? If the doctor is sick, then you can say, if he can't heal himself, why is he trying to heal me? Therefore, it's a bad mark, ironical. You can easily take this into a very ironic direction. And he says, somebody who has heard the teaching of wisdom and still after much, what would mean much? Like let's say you have been in yoga for five years. That starts being much. You have gone through 25 levels of yoga. You have gone into chakra tapas or something and you are still unattuned and disharmonious. Very beautiful words they use here. Unattuned. Attuned to what? Attuned to the higher truth. Attuned to the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. Attuned to Shambhala. Attuned to spirituality. Attuned to the spirit. Attuned. And if you are yet unattuned, like you find people that have been in a monastery for 10 years and they constantly are possessed by inferior worries. They worry about the food, they worry about the money, they worry about this and that, and they are not doing spiritual work. There are so many people, I have been in so many communities where people who are rulers of ashrams and rulers of monasteries, they were just gigantic businessmen and businesswomen. They were politicians. They were deal makers. There was no spiritual practice or other such things. I could elaborate a lot, but there is no need because many of you know typical examples of that. Like you wonder yourself, this person is the Dalai Lama or the Karmapa, this person is a bishop or a pope or a Shankaracharya or something. I wonder what practice do they do? Or at least if they don't do a practice because they have a constant state of higher consciousness, then at least how is their nature? Is their nature attuned and harmonious or unattuned? and disharmonious. This is why 
here we are having a deeper truth, like it is okay to say, oh, I have reached a state of spiritual insight. But if you have been much, much, much in the presence of that, wouldn't that be seen somewhere, somehow? Then you find people who say they are great gurus in yoga or in spirituality, like Nisargadatta Maharaj or others, they smoke. They are chain smokers. Is that attuned and harmonious? It's difficult to say. Attuned, it's difficult to say. But harmonious, that can't be very harmonious when it is not harmonious, obviously, in terms of your health and other things. This list could continue. Disharmonious in so many ways. Ramakrishna called the attention of his own guru, who was having outbursts of anger, was a very, very difficult temperament and character. And he said, you, Totapuri, who have reached the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and you can be angry at some poor bugger who just happens to be around and disturbs you. And Totapuri took it to the heart. Nobody had dared to confront him on this, and that's why Totapuri maybe never saw himself in the mirror, had never been having the awareness, the consciousness that somebody pinged him back. And then Totapuri was like zapped, and he closed his eyes, and after half an hour he said, you are right, anger is not good, I shall control it. And the legend about the life of Totapuri says that since that day, nobody saw him in any outburst of anger anymore. Totapuri, when called attention, hey, you Totapuri, who have done meditation for 40 years, you are still having some unworthy burst of anger. Totapuri suppressed it. He brought it to an end instantaneously. He said, indeed, this is too much. Indeed, this is not harmonious. Totapuri demonstrated that he was attuned and harmonious. This is a very alarming signal. I see people in Agama who have been here for years and they are becoming more harmonious, more attuned, and it is beautiful to see that. And sometimes you see people who leave parts of their lives disharmonious, unattuned. Of course, they would always have an excuse, like I don't have time to deal with that. I have something more important to do. Sometimes it's true, like indeed, there is a Latin proverb which says, Nec Hercules contra plures, which means not even Hercules should, find se should fight several enemies at the same time. Hercules, the Greek hero, fought many bad guys. And he did the famous works of Hercules, and he was a real beneficial hero. But even Hercules did his great works, one by one, not simultaneously. Even Hercules didn't have energy to do everything at once. So that is true. One person maybe cannot confront two things at the same time. I am a little bit angry, and I'm also still addicted to smoking. I should eliminate one of those two evils from my personality. Which one of them shall I start with? And then you make a choice, and you neglect one of them for three years, but you deal with the other one, and you sort it out. And when you sorted that one out, then you can close that chapter, and you can turn your face to the new enemy on the path, and deal with it frontally and full power. 
Therefore, it is true that the subject as Yoga Swami, as the great Sri Lankan yogi Yoga Swami said, the subject is vast and the time is little, like life is short. Maybe we will not manage to fix everything in a lifetime, but one should see at least some growth. This is the sadness. <clears throat> if three years, five years, ten years have passed and you are as unattuned and as disharmonious or maybe more than when you were ten years ago, that definitely cannot be a good sign. The Tibetan yogis are making you rid ridicule. They are ridiculing such a situation. They say, if after having heard much of the doctrine, like Buddha wastes his voice on you, the great gurus talk and talk, and they talk to the wall. You are not at home. You are not paying heed. You are not paying attention. If after having heard much of the doctrine, it's written in books, it is said by gurus and so on, one's nature still be unattuned and disharmonious, it's a good meditation. Meditate. Are you attuned and harmonious? Are you unattuned and disharmonious? Where are you attuned and harmonious? In which parts you are unattuned and disharmonious? Look from the standpoint of the yamas and niyamas, which are a sort of checker, which are a sort of Occam's razor. You can check everything through that. How is your ahimsa? How is your satyam? How is your asteya? How is your brahmacharya? How is your aparigraha? In them, are you attuned like the great yogis? Or are you unattuned and disharmonious? This is always a verification. It's a very important verification. Of course, many people can hide again behind the fact that, oh, I've attained some transcendent spiritual insight. And meanwhile, I didn't sort out some of my emotional nature. Within those levels, it is maybe okay as long as it does not disturb the world. For example, there are people who complain of the fact that in the ashram of Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna, the Puritan, smoking was allowed. Apparently, even Ramakrishna had indulged at some time in some cigar cigarettes. And Ramakrishna himself says, I was so much in samadhi that sometimes to come to my physical body because I'd lost any attraction to it, I had to suggest into myself, into my mind, some inferior desires, such as wanting to eat something or, he says with his own words, smoking a cigarette. And then he would get back to his physical body simply because he would have an animal inferior material desire. So you would say, see, even Ramakrishna could be disharmonious. Ramakrishna, at least being the great, amazing spiritual teacher that he was, he says, I was doing that mentally just because I was too frantic, too hysterical, too much gone into samadhi, and I needed to anchor myself a little bit in the physical world. Thus, Again, let's not be teetotalers or perfectionistic, exclusivistic people because it doesn't work that way. But when the Tibetans say to be unattuned and disharmonious, there are things which scratch the eye. 
there are things which are definitely not the right thing. Thus, the point is, if after having heard much of the doctrine, one's nature still be unattuned and disharmonious, one is like a physician with a chronic disease, and this is a grievous failure. It's not only a grievous failure, but the Tibetans make fun of it. Because a physician that has a chronic illness is a fiasco, is a fake. And thus, at least in the vision of the Tibetan gurus, in today's medicine, it is accepted that doctors bear illnesses, but the Tibetans were more integral, more holistic from this standpoint. And they simply said, if you are a physician, a doctor, first show the effects on you, show that things are working on you. The eleventh statement, to be clever concerning precepts, yet ignorant of the spiritual experiences which come from applying them, is to be like a rich man who has lost the key of his treasury, and this is a grievous failure. Another acid irony, a rich man who has lost the key of his treasury, looks really stupid. It's really pathetic. And therefore... The Tibetans again make fun of this, to be clever concerning precepts, yet ignorant of the spiritual experiences which come from applying them. You will find even in Agama, people who will explain to you very clearly that something, this comes from the fourth sub-level of Anahata Chakra, and it is something which derives from Vigyanamaya Kosha, and is this and that, and if somebody just interrupts and says, please, did you ever experience the fourth sub-level of Anahata Chakra in an overwhelming, pure, intense state? Like, do you know what you are talking about? And then if the person doesn't lie, the person would say, well, actually, no. This is a person that knows the precepts, can fill you up, can drown you in theory, but the person is just a theoretician. They do not sit down and do it. They can talk about Kundalini. I have encountered countless authors who repeat absurdly that Kundalini is like a burning fire through your spine. And once awakened, it can kill you, burn you, madden you. You shouldn't even touch that and do... Did these people actually do six months of Kundalini Yoga in their lives so that they know what they are writing then why do they have the cheek, the incredible cheek, of writing a book and condemning to death a few trees for the paper of those lousy books when they actually did not try? When you did not try, what authoritative can thing can you say about Kundalini when you haven't done Kundalini Yoga yourself and you didn't have the rising of Kundalini, at least partly, not to mention that it would be nice to have had the rising of Kundalini totally. Gopi Krishna, today if you Google Kundalini, Kundalini books, one of the first names which comes on the list is some, um, some Indian dude called Gopi Krishna, who had the cheek of writing two, three books on Kundalini, because one day when he was meditating on a golden Shiva on top of his head, he had a rising of Kundalini, a very strong energy, and he decided that that was it. 
And he wrote great title books like Kundalini, The Biological Basis of Genius and Enlightenment, The Secret of Kundalini, and other such books like He Knew the Secret of Kundalini. He was an unhappy, disharmonious person till the end of his life. In his family, the Indian society abounds of horrendous things which happen in his own household where servants got murdered and lots of because of the, of, of the behavior of the family and so on. And Gopi Krishna, it was told to me by Indian gurus, by Swami Gitananda and people from Bihar School of Yoga, that Gopi Krishna himself, when he passed away, he confessed that if he would have known what he's getting himself into, he would have never written those books and he would have done something else with his life. But until today, if you Google, Gopi Krishna is supposed to be one of the great authorities in Kundalini. While everybody who did Kundalini and understands Kundalini, when you read the books of Gopi Krishna, you see he's a total amateur. He skims on the surface due to some 20 minutes of his own experience with a very partial form of Kundalini rising, plus a lot of stuff taken from the books. Like people you will find in your life, people who are very smart and they will tell you, no, if you do sexual tantra, then you are going to actually become very depressed on the sexual energy and this and when you do sexual tantra either you steal the energy of your partner or your partner steals your energy you wouldn't believe how many theories of these I heard and some of them circulating as rumors through Agama those people never practiced a year or two of sexual tantra to know what it really is and how it works and what is really happening but they know Oh, I don't need to practice that. I know. My, another, somebody told me. I read it in a book. Oh, I had an opening of the third eye one day and I could see it very clearly. These people are living in Maya. These people are living in a total illusion and they imagine that they can give authoritative uh, advice. Who on earth came up with a ridiculous statement that the heart chakra is green in color. Only a total theoretician could have said that because the color green activates people's Manipura chakra and it never activates Anahata chakra. There are other colors such as forms of yellow and blue which are activating Anahata chakra. Green has nothing to do with Anahata Chakra. So the fact that somebody had a vision that if there are six colors of the rainbow and six chakras under Ajna Chakra, they probably must fit linearly with each other, that person was a theoretician, a person who was filled up with intellectual garbage because it was not even accurate, and that person did not have the experience. The experience would have been to visualize green for six months, to dress in green, to live in a green space in nature, or to paint your room in green and see what's happening after six months of drowning yourself in green color all the time and then see if the effects correspond to Anahata Chakra or rather to another chakra. But this you will find all the time. And especially in the modern times, this degree of imposture 
because that's what it is. It is imposture. If the people are not imposters, then they are mental patients, because it's worse. At least if they are imposters, they know that they don't know. But when they don't even know that they don't know, then it's insanity. Then those people live in a world of dreams. They live in utopia. They live in a phantasmagoric reality. So, therefore, the point is very simple. Tibetan yogis, like most of the yogis in the tradition, were very practical people. They said the precepts are not there for you to juggle intellectually with them, because very often you'll, again, at least if you'd have a teacher, if any one of you suddenly gets a vision that the six colors of the rainbow fit with the chakras, and then you come and ask me, and I will tell you the error comes from the fact that actually the colors of the rainbow correspond to the universe, and the universe is up till Vishuddha chakra. That's why the sixth color of the rainbow, violet, does not correspond to Ajna chakra. It corresponds indeed to Vishuddha chakra, because from Muladhara to Vishuddha, you have the whole spectrum of the five elements, and that's the universe. That's an octave. And Ajna chakra is something else. And it's very well known in yoga that Ajna Chakra is called the command center. It has 96 spokes, which are 48 to the left and 48 to the right. 48 is the sum total of the spokes on all the other chakras. And that's why Ajna Chakra has as much spokes on one of its sides as all the other five chakras have in total. And that's not a coincidence. So Ajna Chakra is out of the game of the colors of the rainbow. It's something else. And the crown chakra, of course, is on top of everything else. Therefore, if somebody at least would ask, you have a vision and you are a philosopher and you like to speculate intellectually, then at least confront your knowledge with the tradition. Confront your knowledge with the practitioners. And, of course, much better than those, do your own practice. The precepts of yoga says here, to be clever concerning precepts. They are made so that you can have spiritual experiences, yet ignorant of the spiritual experiences which come from applying them. Everybody knows that there is a crown chakra. Have you been in your crown chakra? Have you ever got absorbed in your crown chakra? Did you ever get to a state of consciousness of the crown chakra. If not, stop juggling intellectual concepts about the crown chakra. You've got enough knowledge. Your guru told you there is the crown chakra and it's placed right here. The Shirshasana works on the crown chakra. You can perform pranayama on the crown chakra. Sit down and get to work. Now it's time to see it's time to experience the experiences which come from this knowledge about the crown chakra and the methods to activate it. Otherwise, it's useless and that person is exactly like a person that has become sterile, fruitless. The Tibetan comparison is a bit cynical, cruel. It is like a rich man who has lost the key of his treasury. And then you sit outside and cry 
because you would like to go inside and get some money and do something, but you cannot because you cannot find the key. What is the usefulness of wanting to have compassion when you have not performed Vajrasana and or compassion meditation for long enough time so that you can experience a little bit of compassion? When is the last time when you felt actual compassion, not politeness, not kindliness, but compassion to a human being, to an animal, to this planet, to something that you shed tears, that it really touched you to a very deep level, the level of compassion. That is what the teaching about compassion is made, not with juggling with it and making. In Buddhism, in Christianity, there are so many exegeses, there are so many studies and theses and commentaries and commentaries upon commentaries and people who write a book about how you should love Jesus and people who write a book about how you should... But most people never experience the love of God in their lives and they dare to speak about things which they have not experienced. Tibetan yogis considered that a pathetic failure, ridiculous, like apply for God's sake. These things are practical. Yoga is a practical science and if you don't make it be alive in your lives, it's good for nothing. You have just learned theory and you are playing it like a gramophone. It's not leading anywhere. Twelve. To attempt to explain to others doctrines which one has not completely mastered oneself is to be like a blind man leading another blind. And this is a grievous failure. The blind man leaving another blind, it's a beautiful comparison you used even by Jesus. Says, who says if a blind man will lead another blind man, they will both end into a ditch. It's a terrible thing if a blind man leads another blind man because the first blind man is not qualified to lead. One of my teachers, I remember, wrote once a few words and he said, this situation is so very clear in this Kali Yuga where everybody wants to be a teacher and nobody knows how to be a disciple anymore. It is a thing, you know. It's like I'm... I remember I was teaching in Rishikesh in the beginnings of my teaching in India, then I have these students, they just do the one month intensive, then six months later, they sent me a letter that now they are in the United States teaching yoga. They, of course, never even bothered to ask for permission. They thought that they knew so much that they were ready to teach. Why do people want to teach so quickly? There are people who would say, I need first to be really good. I need to study 12 years, then I will have the cheek to show myself in public and to teach something which I have done and which I'm mastering to a certain level. Thus, this is indeed a thing, again, of boosting of the ego, of lack of modesty, of people having vested interests, people having ulterior motives, financial motives and so on. That is why, for example, in the school here, we do have teacher training programs, but always when people are teaching 
at a level which goes beyond the very beginning things, we offer to the people empowerment. Every yoga teacher in this school is given an empowerment. And the deal is very clear. You need an empowerment until you can become spiritually independent. When you become spiritually independent, you don't need an empowerment anymore. Because then God empowers you directly. In Christianity, in the practice of Christianity, to be a practicing Christian in many communities, one of the main practices is that you have to take the communion. The blood and body of Christ has to be taken on a regular basis, preferably every Sunday. Every week you have to commune with Christ. That's the practice of a Christian. And of course to commune with Christ, you need to make a confession before that. And in case you have done grievous acts, then you are given by your priest, by your advisor, a tapas, a a penance so that you should compensate for it. And this is a practice. may be hard to comprehend for some people, but it is a practice. But what I'm saying is there have been saints that lived out in the desert. There was no communion in the desert. There was no church. There was no priest. There was no community. There were people who lived in the desert for 30 years, like Saint Mary of Egypt. When she was discovered by Zosimas, by a priest called Zosimas, she had lived for 30 years alone in the desert, naked. How did she get the communion? She didn't do the Christian practice of communing with Christ. But then it was said very clearly that such people commune through prayer. They don't need the bread and the wine. They are directly in Samyama, in identification, in telepathic and energetic communion with Christ, with God, and their communion comes through a direct contact. It's the same in yoga. Yoga teachers, when things are done right, either they have reached their own experience, or if not, they have a partial experience, and the rest is compensated by consecration, by carefully done consecration, by humility, like I humbly acknowledge that I am not at the supreme level of a Ramakrishna or something to be able to teach such things. And therefore, teachers can teach, but they can teach through empowerment. Then they don't teach in their name. They teach in the name of a lineage. They teach in the name of a school. They teach in the name of a style or something, because they do not have the experience for it. So, Tibetans are clear about this point, to attempt to explain to others doctrines which one has not completely mastered oneself. Like you talk to people about, you should love more. Do you love? You explain something which you haven't mastered. It's not that you cannot tell the truth, you can tell the truth, but you can simply say, this is not a teaching which comes from, through me. It's not a teaching which comes from me. This is a teaching upon which I myself am working. Don't take me like being a master on this. I'm working on it. It is worthy for me to quote for you the traditional truth that thou shall love. But, you no, know, listen to somebody that has discovered love 
and can speak about it authoritatively. Otherwise, I am transmitting a truth to attempt to explain to others. I'm not attempting to explain it. I'm simply saying the truth. And if you want, we can work together along the path on this to attempt to explain to others doctrines which one has not completely mastered oneself. This is indeed not working, is to be like a blind man leading another blind, of, again, a pretty cruel comparison, and this is a grievous failure. See, people are sometimes thinking that you can take it on small steps, and you can take it on small steps if you master things as much as they can be mastered, and you do not stretch beyond that. There is the famous case in literature, in self-development literature, of a man who decided to take Spanish language courses, and then he found a gimmick in which he could take Spanish language courses for free. He joined the Spanish language course where he was teaching, and the next day or the next week, I forgot, he himself was teaching Spanish to somebody, and he was getting paid for being a teacher. And every day, he did exactly the lesson which had been done with him the previous day by his teacher. Like a copycat. Like a parrot. He was repeating the lesson identically. <clears throat> he wouldn't have been able to stretch beyond that. He was able to just convey exactly what was given to him. And in this way, he was basically learning Spanish for free. Because he was paying for classes and he, was, he found somebody who paid him. And that person didn't realize that he had a teacher who was just one week ahead of him in the study of Spanish. That was all his advantage. But that advantage he used strategically and continuously. Therefore, here there are many things to be understood. And again, in yoga it's not only about teaching Spanish or teaching a skill. It is that together with the teaching of yoga, you can teach the Padahastasana and you can teach the Udhyana Bandha, but the problem is that together with them there comes a philosophy of life. When do you apply Padahastasana and for what? When do you start doing Udhyana Bandha and with a view to what? And therefore, there is a much deeper story there, because it's not only about teaching a technique. Let me teach you the cobra pose. Theoretically, if somebody has taught you the cobra pose authoritatively and correctly, nobody can prevent you from going next week and showing it to somebody just identical. Theoretically, you can. But the problem is that you cannot explain a lot of things about the heart chakra, the place of the heart chakra in one's spiritual life. You may encounter a person whose heart chakra is already three times bigger than yours because of the astrological sign in which they are born or because of the karma from their previous lives. And then, what do you explain to that person? Because that person could be your teacher in real life. You can teach them the technique, but you cannot teach them love or the heart chakra because you yourself are a beginner at that. That is why this is important to remember. Don't push yourselves too quickly to teach unless you are empowered specifically by a process like this 
Because otherwise you are like the proverbial blind man that leads another blind man. Teach those things which you have been authorized to teach, which you are empowered to teach, things on which you have the experience of. And if you have not mastered those doctrines yourself, oh, there is a possibility for you to teach Paschimottanasana and deep levels even without being empowered. I teach you Paschimottanasana, you go and practice until you can perform it 3 hours and 48 minutes at a stretch. You do it for 3 hours and 48 minutes for a month or 2 or 3 or 6. Then you'll kind of know pretty much everything which a mortal can know about the practice of Paschimottanasana. Then you have mastered that doctrine. That's how you do it when you are maybe too arrogant or there are logistical circumstantial conditions which prevent you from getting a formal empowerment. Then you have to practice. Then you have to practice really good. And finally, 13, the last of this long list of ironical mention of so-called grievous failures, to hold the experiences resulting from the first stage of meditation to be those of the final stage is to be like a man who mistakes brass for gold. And this is a grievous failure. There is something even more mistakable than brass for gold, and that is the fool's gold, the pyrite. There's a mineral which looks very, very much like gold, and it's one of the beginner rookie mistakes in geological and people who are mining for gold that they find some golden yellow shining thing and they go berserk like I stroke gold, I found gold. And then some geologist or person who has experience in this laughs their head off and says, no fool, you found pyrite. This is just iron sulfur and it looks very much like gold, but it's very much not gold. Therefore, this in, in Tibet, as you know, and in India, they practice many objects such as bells, uh, plates, and other things which are made of brass. Brass is a metal, a metal which was used a lot. It is used in these meditation bowls. It's, it's one of the metals or part. It's, a, it's an alloy which is like brass starting from copper, zinc, and then you add a few other metals until you get to the five metals out of which these are made. So this is a, just an elaborate brass. And though brass was a very familiar metal in Tibet. And of course brass being somewhat golden yellow in color, somebody can always inquire if there is not a big amount of gold in it or something. And of course a man who mistakes brass for gold is a fool. That's why it's even called the other thing, the pyrite, is called the fool's gold. Because many people got fooled by it and they actually went into uh, disappointment. To hold the experiences resulting from the first stage of meditation to be those of the final stage. What's the final stage? Enlightenment. If some people have some ecstatic state or see some light or they go in a state where their body is completely cataleptic, or they feel like their breath is stopping, or they have some other bit of spectacular experiences, then they would go through the roof and say, wow, I think I've reached something very important. Usually, 
that's the function of a teacher, often to humiliate you and to disappoint you by simply telling you you have you stroke fool's gold again. This is not real gold. That's a cold shower. That's why the teacher is not always a comfortable person because psychologically the teacher often gives you lots of cold showers and disappointments simply because people's ego inflates all the time. The ego is so much wishing to quickly, quickly reach something and be accomplished quickly, quickly, and let's finish with it. If we could have a weekend course on enlightenment and by Sunday evening be enlightened, that would save us so much time and effort and we could do it, that would be so nice and all that. Of course, the human spiritual history shows that that is not the case, that accidentally there have been people who are predestined and who reached enlightenment surprisingly quickly, but the rule of thumb is that there is an average time. And in India, after thousands of years of spiritual experience, they consider the average time for a person to practice a method and to reach the, some significant spiritual breakthrough, 12 years. Acknowledging that some people might reach it in 6 or in 3, and some people might reach it in 24 years because of being particularly lazy and not really putting their shoulder into it and going slowly. That's an average, but still it gives an idea about the measure, the ratio of it, like when people are out of this ratio, then something is abnormal. It can be abnormal in the very good way, but still it is not average. And that is why this sentence, actually this statement, has to be elaborated. The, to hold the experience resulting from the first stage of meditation to be those of the final stage, or to hold the experience resulting from the second stage of meditation to be those from the final stage, or any other, any confusion. It doesn't mean that if you reach the second stage of meditation, whatever that is, we could elaborate. The Tibetans had a system of their own. In India, the systems were classified in a different way. Like we have Ashtanga Yoga, Yoga with eight steps. We have Patanjali defining the levels in meditation like concentration, meditation, and Samadhi. Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, there are different systems of categorization. This is not important at this point when we're talking to in generalities. What is important at this point is the fact that many people get immediately enthusiastic about some things. There are people, it happened so many times, there are people in the hippie generation who had experiences with psychedelics. And I met lots of hippies, both from the 60s and 70s, as well as modern hippies going through India and smoking dope or taking some more radical stuff and claiming insanely, like it could be seen so clearly, claiming that somehow they have reached enlightenment. And at a simple verification of what is enlightenment, there was nothing there. Those people had some peak experience and their ego was immediately popping up into victory. Yay! I got it. Yes, this peak experience means I've seen the truth. That's just one small experience. You have to have confirmation. 
You have to have repeated experiences. There need to appear some feedbacks of it. For example, Patanjali, when he describes the higher states of mind, he shows that there is some backfiring in the positive meaning of the word. There is some bouncing back. There is some effect, some echo of the spirituality in the human being. It cannot remain completely without effect. That is why this is again an effect of superficiality, of haste, of ego, of the desire of promoting yourself as more than you are. And it's typical in spirituality because if anybody says, I can lift 500 kilos, somebody can say, show me. If anybody says, I can produce gold in my laboratory, somebody says, show me. If anybody says, I have uh, meditated on the statement of Ramana Maharishi, who am I, and I have seen the pure self, how can you say, show me? What will you show me? Because enlightenment through its very nature is undemonstrable as such. You cannot demonstrate to somebody, I have that revelation, I have that realization, I have that level of consciousness. Because all you communicate with a person is your mind, your thoughts. And you can tell to a, to a person, I have the thought of this. But the state of consciousness, only telepathically, empathically, through samyama, somebody who is at that level could empathize with that person and see it. I remember it's so clear when you do yoga. It's Again, this is not pejorative in any way at the address of the person. But I remember that in the days when the Dalai Lama was still a growing figure in the West, I remember like in the 1970s, I read some article in a French magazine where they, some journalist was bragging absurdly, like most journalists do, and he made a fool of himself, but I guess many people believed him, that he got to be in the presence of the Dalai Lama, and Dalai Lama finally opened the door, which he never opened to foreigners, and he received him in the morning during his very special session of meditation. And there was the photo of the Dalai Lama, cross-legged in his maroon robes, and that was supposed to be Dalai Lama in meditation. It didn't take more than six months of meditation for one like me, that looking in the pages of that magazine, the first thing when I looked at the photo, took me approximately two seconds, I think, and immediately I bursted and I said, he's not meditating. Like you could see it, 100 obvious percent on that photo. Maybe Dalai Lama had meditated with this journalist, but he definitely didn't allow him to take a photo while he was in meditation. The photo was taken before actually starting meditation or after. Or actually maybe it was just a morning interview and there was no meditation at all after all. Or maybe there had been some Buddhist ritual, some, some morning ritual. In no way was the Dalai Lama in that photo in a state of meditation. Because the state of meditation modifies. Look at the way they always represent Buddhas. When you see Buddha statues, the Buddha eyes are in a certain way. The Buddha lips, the facial expression is in a certain way. 
And many people today complain that there is this commercial art for tourists where you can go in MBK in Bangkok and buy Buddha faces and they look like some peasant just finished his masturbation or something. They don't look like a Buddha in meditation. Artistically, they are crap because they do not have that serenity and that transport which obviously appears on the face of somebody who meditates deeply and goes into that. There is a certain expression and only the amateurs don't know what that expression is. And when you have lived with somebody who meditates or when you have seen Buddha images or if you have taken a photo of Sri Yukteswar in Kriya Yoga meditation or a photo of Swami Shivananda on the shore of the Ganges meditating or a photo of Mahananda Mai in meditation, you see immediately on them that those are taken in meditation. And it's also true that some gurus never wanted photos of themselves taken in meditation. When somebody tried to take a photo of Lahiri Mahasaya in meditation, Lahiri Mahasaya used his mental power and compromised the film. He destroyed the film. The film went black. And the guy took it by surprise. He didn't have the permission. And then he came and confessed. And he said, I'm sorry, I tried to take a photo of you without telling you while you were in meditation. And look, it got black. And then Lahiri Mahasaya told him, let this be a lesson to you. Because you are not just supposed, these are things which are not journalistic. Here we are dealing with deep things which are very intimately spiritual. And it's not for every ignorant to see or to fathom these things. And then this guy asked politely. And Lahiri Mahasaya said, okay, now if you ask politely, I will allow you to take one photo, but just one. And there exists one single photo of Lahiri Mahasaya in meditation, which he acceded to. He agreed to it, and, and he had so much power in himself that he actually could stop it. Other gurus and other yogis, maybe they don't have such paranormal power, but then they simply don't allow it. They simply say, no, you don't take a photo of me. It's not allowed to take a photo. Please, no photos. Don't take photos. Thus, it's not only about the first stage. Here it is put scandalously, extremely. Like there are people who just meditate for three months and they reach some breakthrough. And then they imagine that they are in the bosom of Abraham. They imagine that they have caught God by the ankle. They imagine that they have reached something fantastic. And this is so superficial. It's such a manifestation of superficiality, impatience, and at the same time, ego, boosting of the... Why would you want to trumpet that, oh, I think I've reached something very radical in meditation? Some hippies who never bothered to do six years of yoga, they took LSD three times and then they thought they were enlightened. Then Milarepa was the idiot of the idiots. He should just have taken some LSD and not spent 30 years in the desert or in the mountains. You know, it's like if it's so smart, then why not apply some smart methods or something? There are teachers, people today, who trick people in the fact that you can reach some enlightenment levels by taking ayahuasca. But if it is so clear, then why Ramakrishna or somebody didn't say everybody move to South America and dope yourself with ayahuasca? That's where the future of humanity is. You should all drink ayahuasca and live in enlightenment. 
On the other hand, when you look at the tribes of South America that took ayahuasca, they were not even vegetarian, for God's sake. They were not having a sacred respect for life. They were not cultivating compassion or loving kindness. They were not in contact with Shambhala. Sometimes some of those tribes were even cannibalic tribes. There was lots of violence. There was lots of suffering. The conditions of life were sometimes subhuman. There was no elevation and all that. L even looking by resonance at the body types. You see some photos from Tibet where you see lamas. They are like coming from Shambhala. Such a resonance they have on their faces and on their body. And you look some primitive nations from Africa and South America and other places, Australia, why not? And you start preaching that that's something very holy and very divine. It is not. It can be seen. It is a very amateurish thing, sometimes done out of ego and sometimes done, God knows why, what other reasons of, that people simply reverse the order of experiences and to hold the experiences resulting from the first stage of meditation to be those of the final stage, which sounds almost impossible, but believe me, many people do it, is to be like a man who mistakes brass for gold, and this is a grievous failure.